Welcome to Shelter, a podcast from Rutgers University, Colab Arts, and the New Brunswick Theological Seminary. This is our ongoing series looking at housing insecurities in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and the role academic and religious institutions can play in partnering with the community to seek solutions. I'm Scott Gurian. And I'm Diana Molina. This is part three, so if you're just tuning in, you might want to go back and start at the beginning for some background on the Shelter Project and how it came about. As we described in previous episodes, the impetus for this series was that phrase health officials and political leaders kept repeating in the early days of the pandemic, that we should all shelter in place to limit the spread of the virus. But just what was that supposed to mean to people for whom the very concept of shelter meant wildly different things? Last time, we heard from a variety of perspectives, including someone living in a group home, a woman who'd come to the U.S. seeking political asylum, and an individual who lacked permanent housing and had lived on the streets of New York. On today's episode, we're going to focus on the incarcerated population, as well as people who've recently been released from jail or prison. As a part of the Shelter Project, our team conducted oral history interviews with several individuals from this group, and they all told us that life behind bars was really difficult over the past year and a half. At first, we thought it was like, a joke, like, not a joke, but we didn't think it was that serious because nobody in the jail had got it. It was just something you watched on the news, you know? It wasn't nothing, because it didn't affect us at the time. But then uh, once it actually stopped a lot of like the recreation, different programs, school, it stopped a lot of movement. So I, at that point in time, it definitely was scary. Then we saw like the guards, the medical staff, they start wearing a mask and everything. They were saying, well, it's not to keep you from affecting us. It's for us affecting you because we're the ones outside. My bunkie had actually caught COVID and I didn't have it. So I had to quarantine for two weeks and so did he. But the thing is, they actually had me with somebody else whose bunkie tested positive. At that time, they weren't testing us before we left quarantine. As long as you was okay in 14 days, they just let you out. So that was kind of scary, too. We didn't know how to take that. But then people were dying. There were like maybe like 30 people passed away. There were like five guards that passed away. In my opinion, nobody seen this coming, so we didn't really know what to do. I was terrified. That was John Copeland and John White, who were incarcerated here in New Jersey during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the COVID Prison Project, at the time we're recording this, over 4,500 inmates have tested positive for the virus in New Jersey prisons, and more than 50 have died. You know, Diana, as we were planning out this Shelter podcast series, it seemed only natural that we devote an entire episode to people who were incarcerated, since researchers and individuals who work with this population say there's a strong link between homelessness and the criminal justice system. That's right. You might remember last time when Dr. Kristen O'Brazel-Culfin, a resident historian of houselessness, told us about the long history of nuisance and vagrancy laws that criminalize things like begging, loitering, and public camping. Poor people often find themselves in prison for relatively low-level offenses, and that can begin a downward spiral leading to folks losing their jobs, their personal relationships, and eventually their housing. One study from the Prison Policy Initiative 
found that even a single incarceration made someone seven times more likely to become homeless compared to the general public. We wanted to delve a bit deeper into why that's the case and what some people here in New Jersey are doing to try to break that cycle. So we reached out to Austin Morial, who works with a group called Neighbor Corps Reentry Services. We are a very small nonprofit program located in Highland Park, New Jersey, and we work with individuals who have a history of involvement with the carceral system in Middlesex County, helping them connect to resources that they need to connect to to reach their positive post-release goals, anything from housing to employment to substance abuse programs to guitar lessons or knitting circles. Whatever positive goals they have, we do our best to help them reach them. But there's a particular goal, he says, that tends to be more challenging than the rest. Housing is probably the number one need that participants or potential participants reach out to us for. And I would say, hands down, it is also probably the most frustrating obstacle that we try to help them tackle. In the four years he's been working with NeighborCorps, Austin says he's had hundreds of clients, but he can only recall a single individual who was able to successfully hold down a full-time job while living on the streets. So you can see why he thinks finding safe, comfortable, and affordable shelter is super important for people coming out of jail or prison. But in his experience, he's found that there are a number of factors that often complicate that task. And some of these are things that also came up in the oral history interviews we conducted. Yeah, for starters, there's the problem of climbing out of the financial hole that recently incarcerated people often find themselves in. For example, I spoke to this woman named Demika, whose son got into some legal trouble a few years ago. Then she got charged with hindering his apprehension, which she said wasn't quite accurate. But to make a long story short, she ended up with a seven-month prison sentence. I lost my job. Um, I lost all of my savings that I had, basically. And legal fees, lawyers? Or? Lawyers, and just having to cover the bills while I was gone because I was locked up for seven months. So the money that I had had to go to make sure that everything was still functioning as normal as possible. And I guess I'm grateful that I was able to have that. But I came home, I didn't have any money or I didn't have a job, so I had to look for a job and I tried to get unemployment. But when you get arrested, you can't always technically qualify for unemployment. So I was without money up until I got a job in January. At the time we spoke, she told me she'd found a job earning $17 an hour, which was a far cry from her previous position as executive assistant to the CEO of a nonprofit organization. Now, to be clear, D'Amica was fortunate since she had a home to return to, but Austin says many people he works with aren't as lucky. They're going to have their fines and fees that they owe the jail system or prison system. Um, Generally, their credit is terrible. The majority of the returning citizens are not coming out to a savings account or a checking account that's flush with, with money. And even if they do get a job immediately upon leaving whatever facility they came out of, you know, it still takes time to save up the security deposit, the first month's rent, and then all the other, you know, money that is needed to cover the other expenses that are inherent in moving into a new place. And as is the case with everything we speak about on this podcast, this situation is worsened by the fact that New Jersey is a pretty expensive place to live. Now, let's say you have some money saved up and housing affordability somehow isn't a concern. 
Well, you're not out of the woods just yet. I was told that I was going to have a very, very difficult time finding housing because I'm a convicted felon. That's Matt Novis, and like many formerly incarcerated people, he knew he'd have trouble qualifying for some rental apartments because he didn't have a clean record. In fact, he couldn't even stay at his mother's place for more than a few months. Where she lives, they have requirements. You have to be a certain age, and you have to pass a background check. Uh, you got to fill out paperwork, and uh, I wouldn't meet any of the requirements. She was told by one of the neighbors that There's different sections that are looked over by different people there. They have like a board. And uh, the lady was questioning one of the neighbors about me, asking who I was, how long I was there. I don't want to get my mom in trouble. So my mom said, I hate to do it, but you're going to have to go. I understand that totally, you know. Like I told my mom, I wouldn't want an ex-burglar living next to you. That wouldn't make me feel comfortable at all. You know, so I understand why they have certain things and they do, you know, I I get that. Now, unfortunately for some of us that have straightened out our lives, that follows you around your whole life. The good news for people like Matt is that New Jersey passed a law last summer that prohibits landlords of large buildings from asking about criminal convictions on housing applications. They're also no longer allowed to discriminate against would-be tenants based on non-serious crimes committed many years ago. But the law doesn't offer the same protections to those convicted of sex offenses, arson, or methamphetamine production. And Austin says people can easily skirt the law. Even if they're not doing an official background check, you plug a name into Google and, you know, everything comes up. Another challenge Matt and many others in his situation face in looking for housing is more bureaucratic in nature. When I was in the hospital having my last heart surgery, my wallet was stolen while I was there. It had my ID and my social security card. and They said the only thing I can do is to get a doctor to write a letter saying that I'm their patient and they know who I am and this is my date of birth and the doctor's name has to be on the uh, heading of the paper. But that was before the pandemic they told me this. So not being able to get to these places to be able to do things, it's slowed down my process of being able to get picture ID so I can change my bank account to another bank and you know, be able to do some things finally. Austin says it's quite common for his clients to lack the necessary identification. It either expired while they were incarcerated or it was suspended due to, say, they had DUI charges or they, you know, lost it while they were incarcerated and weren't able to find it. And then the three years go by, then you have to start the whole rigmarole of going through the testing and everything again, especially during COVID. Uh, You know, the waiting times to get an appointment at the DMV are you know, ridiculously long. But to even think about getting in line or to trying to make an appointment, you have to be able to produce your six points of identification to get your ID, which can be very difficult for a variety of reasons. Without a doubt, not being able to access ID quickly really hinders uh, people's attempts to get a roof over their heads. If you manage to overcome all these hurdles we've listed off, you know, the financial challenges, the background check, and having the right documentation, congratulations. 
but you'll still be limited in where you could live if you don't have a car. Because as extensive as New Jersey's public transit system is compared to other parts of the country, there are still a lot of gaps. And many of the entry-level jobs nowadays are in warehouses along the turnpike that are hard to get to by train or bus. So if all else fails, you might be thinking, why not move back in with a relative until you could get yourself back on your feet? Unfortunately, Austin says, that's often not a possibility. The number of people we work with that have that supportive family, you know, it's far outweighed by the ones who don't. And some of our clients, you know, they have family who's in their corner, but it's family who has to kind of support and love them from a distance uh, just due to, you know, things that have happened in the past. One mother, her son was getting ready to be released from jail and he had nowhere to go. But she said, you know, I love him and I want the best for him and I will do whatever I can for him. But based upon the trouble he has caused in our home before, I cannot let him back into our house. You could tell that it was absolutely breaking her heart to say that and to hold firm in her conviction. But it's, you know, it's what she had to do for the well-being of the rest of her family. Many of these potential problems we've ticked through have been exacerbated over the past year and a half as a result of the pandemic. Last fall, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, like other elected officials across the country, granted early release to more than 3,000 prisoners to reduce the spread of the virus. And those people re-entered society in the midst of a tight housing market with rising inflation and social distancing protocols that made even the simplest of tasks infinitely more complex. So Austin clearly had his work cut out for him. And he found himself having to navigate solutions to all sorts of problems he'd never dealt with before. We had a couple of clients who were stuck in two different transitional houses, halfway houses. One of them had been working prior to the pandemic. But once COVID set in, they were basically told, you can continue to work, but if you do, you're going to be out on your own. If you would like to continue residing here, you're not going to be able to work because we can't have people you know, going in and out, in and out, in and out. But you're welcome to leave if you want. <laughs> but how do you leave <laughs> when you're not able to go get a job to then earn the money that's necessary to get your deposit together, to get your first month's rent together, and then keep your fingers crossed that your credit score is going to be good enough, your background check is going to be passable. Thankfully, with the support of the Luce Foundation, which sponsors this podcast, and the Reformed Church of Highland Park's Affordable Housing Corporation, Austin managed to move these people to a shared apartment to help them get back on their feet. And with his other clients, he got to work checking if they qualified for emergency shelter, connecting them with housing organizations and property managers, and even helping them scour Craigslist for potential places to live. John Copeland, who we heard from earlier, was among the people who walked through Austin's door. John had a history of schizophrenia and depression, and had just served two and a half years for getting into a fight with a family friend. Last December, he was released a few months ahead of schedule, and at first he stayed with his sister, but he didn't want to intrude, so he quickly realized he needed a place of his own. Austin connected him with social services, and before long, he found something. This is my first time in my life having my own apartment. The first time I've ever been to another city, but it's great, though, good experience, and I know that God is in control of all of this because there was a room available in Brunswick, 
And I was trying to get that room so bad, and I even begged the landlord. He was like, well, it's rented. He kept saying that. The people that lived there, they were like, no, it's not rented. Why are you telling you that? I'm like, I don't know. But as I see it, that was God saying, no, don't get that. Because just the other day, I found out the whole place caught fire. And when I went there to see the place, the room I was going to get was really gutted out. You know, and I was like, Lord, I thank you so much. You know, you saved me again. And the reason why I say it again was because when I was born, I was a preemie. And I was told that I wouldn't live. And they said if I did live, that I'd be retarded or have cerebral palsy. And it's like, I'm here, 53 years old. You know, so God saved me again. He has his hand on my life. God is good. At first glance, John's apartment might not seem particularly large or fancy in any way, but he thinks it's absolutely perfect. I don't even envy no one anymore because I thought about it. You can have a mansion and I got an apartment. What difference does it make? We both have a roof. We both have a toilet. We both can eat. We both have the kitchen. It's just that yours is bigger than mine. So what? For Austin, it's cases like this that stick with him and give his work meaning. Just to see that sense of pride and just pure joy that he now has and makes it help him walk a little bit taller and, you know, put a little bit more swagger in his step to know that he now has a place of his own other than a prison cell. It's an indescribable feeling. When I was getting ready to leave the hotel where I was working before coming to work for NeighborCorps, a friend of mine at the hotel said, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> She's like, not that this hotel is great, but, you know, why would you want to go and, you know, work with people that have been, you know, in jail or incarcerated before? It really was as simple as because that could easily be me. I mean, I'm sure most of us have done things that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're not terrible things, but if you look at just the legality of them, there are things that could have, you know, put us in jail. And a lot of the times, the only thing that separates me from the person I'm talking to is that that person got caught and I didn't. So it's just kind of the fact that, you know, it could be me one day in need of this assistance or this kind of support and help. You know, I do believe that just because you make a mistake in your past or, you know, poor decisions in your past, it shouldn't define what your life is going to look like in the future. On the next episode of Shelter, we consider the importance of providing a roof over someone's head as a prerequisite for all other sorts of help they might need. Housing first is so theologically sound. It's grace first. It's like before you can do anything else, something is lavishly poured out upon you, namely the ability to go to good night's sleep and to have your very basics addressed, and then you can grow into the rest. Shelter is a co-production of the Rutgers University New Brunswick's Public History Program, the Rutgers Center for Cultural Analysis, the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, and Colab Arts. Our editorial team includes Dan Swern, Colin Yeager, Nathan Jeremy Brink, and Kristen obrazel Colfin. Special thanks to our team members who conducted oral histories for this episode, Alyssa Miller and Ala Gitan. Our theme music is by Dave Seaman and Carlos Vasquez, and the series was made with the generous support of the Henry Luce Foundation. As we mentioned at the end of each episode, this podcast is just one small part of a larger shelter project. We've also collected a bunch of oral history interviews and commissioned a diverse group of performance and visual artists to create original work in response to the housing crisis. 
You can learn more by visiting our website at shelternj.org. Remember to follow or subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date. And if you like what you hear, please spread the word on social media or tell a friend. Until next time, I'm Diana Molina. And I'm Scott Gurian. Thanks for listening.